You are listening to the Post Growth Australia podcast, the one podcast where size don't matter and where better is better than bigger. Hello, all and sundry, and welcome back to another New Year's edition of Post Growth Australia podcast. I'm your host, Michael Bayliss, and with me is co-host Mark Allen. Happy New Year, folks. Good to be here. And I just want to let everyone know that we have an absolutely amazing guest later on in this episode. Um, speaking of which, how was your New Year? Was it happy? Reasonably happy, yeah. Mustn't grumble. <laughs> no pressure. I'm very grateful that I'm not suffering an extreme weather event where I am right now. Um, I know a lot of people have been suffering for many reasons, partly due to extreme weather and partly due to the economic system we're in not working. So I am very privileged at this stage to be where I am and to be doing what I'm doing and I'm making the most of it. And my heart goes out to northern Western Australia, particularly around the Matawara Fitzroy area, in which is uh, currently suffering from uh, flash flooding over the past couple of months. And uh, we've had guests on previously in PGAP from that region. You know, we are very lucky to be in a more benign part of the country, but so many places in this country and the world aren't. But coffee gets us through, does it not? It does, it does. And these times, coffee does help. And as uh, tradition in season four, I keep us both caffeinated before we record every episode. And I am very grateful for that. Thank <laughs> you. He makes a good coffee, folks. Yes, it keeps the pain laughing. So you had a couple of New Year's resolutions. I did. Well, one in particular, which was to have a Facebook holiday. And I decided to start my New Year's resolution a little bit before New Year because I find myself panicking on New Year's Eve. It's like it's like countdown to midnight, and I think in five minutes my whole life is going to change, you know. So I thought, no, I'll start the New Year's resolution a few days early. And I decided to have a Facebook holiday because I really need to have a bit of a digital detox and get my attention span back. I was doing a bit of Christmas shopping, and I was browsing through the book section, which was a very retro thing to do, because, you know, remember books? Those sort of papery cardboard things that people used to read? A mm. book, yeah. Mm. And mm. there was one of these books that was something along the lines of how to get your attention span back, or something like that. Obviously, I didn't have the attention span to remember it. So I was... Sounds like you barely had the attention span to read the front cover. I, I didn't. <laughs> no, I didn't. I checked my phone within about two seconds. It's like, um, oh, yeah. It's so I managed to flick through it, and between phone checks, I managed to read a little bit about how important it is to have a holiday from social media. And for me, it seems like the right thing to do. I'm still off Facebook. When I go back, hoping I will come back to it with a, a different perspective and a different attitude. And where I, I think Facebook can play an important role, but I think it's good that we all have some understanding of its limitations and where the boundaries are. So when I do return, I will be less inclined, I hope, to get wrapped up in conversations that will likely lead to entrenched cognitive dissonance or get caught up in echo chambers and all of that kind of thing. And in the meantime, I'd like to thank you for taking some of the pressure off me in terms of uh, looking after the Facebook groups. I manage a few Facebook groups and poor Michael here is now doing that for me, but you're doing all right, you're enjoying it, aren't you? 
If it provides you with any consolation, I'm ruling these groups with an iron fist. I'm glad to hear that. I'm brutal, but I'm fair. Brutal and fair, yes. That's just what you want, isn't it? <laughs> I want them to welcome me back <laughs> with open arms. I've been doing a bit of uh, reading over the new year too. What have you been reading? A lot of Dick. Philip K. Dick. Ah, oh, yes. <laughs> get your mind off the gutter, listeners. Look, it's a new year. I always get a bit existential in the new year, but mainly because I reflect back and think of the most ridiculously worst things that happened in 2022. Um, what's been a ridiculous highlight for you? Well, there's so much ridiculousness, but I think a couple of news stories are particularly symbolic, and I think one of them is the fact that... Uh, we can't even get soft plastic recycling right in this country. I mean, it was always tokenistic to be recycling our soft plastic, washing out our frozen pea bags while property developers bulldoze down more bush. And you know, but there was still, nevertheless, a feeling that we were part of a closed loop. We buy something and it gets sort of recycled. I mean, bags get like, get made into a park bench or something, and possibly the world needs more park benches. I don't know. But it was tokenistic, and I'd only get a little, little bit of dopamine from doing it. But it was something. It was something, and we can't even do that. And I think that's symbolic of the way we are going. Um, we're moving backwards in some ways. I'd love to be able to travel from Perth to Adelaide by train, but you, you just can't do that anymore unless you pay $2,000 and have champagne service all the way. There's no low-cost way of travelling out of WA now without flying. So yeah, for me, the symbolic gesture of last year was that we can't even get recycling right in a time where late-stage capitalism and growthism is continuing to destroy the planet at a faster and faster rate. How about you? Yes, um, what has been a low light for me was the Jobs and Skills Summit where industry bemoaned that our population wasn't high enough and we better have high population growth again, even more so than last time. Um, and it's quite topical because I'm writing um, for Sustainable Population Australia a briefing note on the housing crisis and, you know, rental stress has gone from the single digits of the um, highest stress among respondents, financial stress, to the double digits three years later. So the <laughs> growth in housing crisis is exponential. And so it just seems really, really bizarre that neoliberalism seems fixated on increasing the population as fast as as possible whilst trying to price everyone out of the country as fast as possible. That just seems like such a catch-22, but there you go. It really does. The ABC recently published an article saying that part of our way out of housing stress is to, is to build more houses. And that's just disingenuous because we all know that we are increasing our rate of population growth all of the time. So the more we increase the amount of housing and land that we release for housing, the more we just increase the population to compensate. And that's deliberate because the powers that be do not want house prices to dramatically drop. There are too many politicians, folks, who own second homes. So we've got an overinflated housing market. And the only way that they can keep it going 
is to keep demand for property high. But at the same time, they want to build a lot more property because the development lobby is very strong. So they'll use that as an excuse and they say, oh, we need to free up more land for development. But the only thing we should be building more of in terms of housing affordability is public housing and cooperative housing. That's the only way in this system that we're in to actually provide long-term housing security for most people. And of course we can do that through modern monetary theory. Now that I understand modern monetary theory, I know that we can do that. And we'll be talking a lot more about that over the uh, coming episodes. One of our future guests uh, is deeply involved in the modern monetary theory revolution. So stick around for season four of PGAP. But, um, as is our want, and partly because this podcast is supported by Sustainable Population Australia, a population is going to feature keenly in this episode with our guest, Isabella Cortez, from uh, Colombian-based Women for Conservation. Now, you know, so much of the argument against population is that it's disingenuous to people and particularly women from the global south but like Florence Blondell from previous episodes Isabella um, comes from the global south with a very very different reality reality lived experience that's going to turn all of those myths and misconceptions onto its head it's a very important episode looking forward to this I certainly am let's go Welcome back to PGAP. I am reunited with Isabella Cortez. How are you, Isabella? I'm excellent. Thank you so much for having me here. Tell us a little bit about yourself, your passions, and what inspires you in um, 30 seconds or less. My name is Isabella, and I'm a muralist, artist, dancer, singer and activist. And one of the most important things that I find interesting about myself is that I'm very adventurous. What I do is I experience all these different kinds of styles and I mix them together in multimedia art. Now, obviously, the bulk of the conversation later on will be on, you know, population, family and planning and what women for conservation are doing in that sphere. But last time we collaborated, it was for the Sustainable Population Australia newsletter. Um, You gave me such wonderful answers to the questions, but unfortunately were confined to 750 words. So it had to leave out a lot of the stuff about you as an artist and your creative expressions. So (laughs) I want to try and make amends for that. So having discovered you're such an accomplished artist, tell us as much as you like about your art and how it intersects with your activism and outlook on the world. One of the primary things that I like to study is I really like endemic species. So I paint and create art with a lot of endemic species, whether it be birds or amphibians or any kind. And I really enjoy telling the story of this species on murals in in a setting where everyone can access art. 
because for me, everyone should be able to access art and experience it. So I've primarily worked on, on murals internationally in Colombia through different very, very inaccessible areas. I've done it in areas that have significant meaning in biodiversity. So I've done murals in the Sierra Nevada of the Periquito de Santa Marta, sorry, Periquito de Santa Marta. And the Periquito de Santa Marta is one of the most important species. So what I get to tell is the mysticism behind this animal. And I sing about it in songs. I have a song called Aguita de Paramo, which means water of Paramo, one of the most important ecosystems on the planet and an ecosystem that is seen as cosmic that has cosmic entanglement, that its alignment and its balance is what our cosmos depends on by the indigenous people for thousands and thousands of years. And I sing about the relationship of the water with the animals and the legends of different cultures, for example. But then I also have another side of me where I experience myself and my femininity and my sexuality and my empowerment and who I want to be and manifest and that best version of myself that I want to manifest and that I want other people to manifest too because essentially you're repeating just what I'm saying and those are the affirmations that I tell myself. <laughs> you know, as you've answering the question, it's occurred to me that we haven't actually had many visual artists on PGAP and I'm really excited that... Uh, we're able to <laughs> break the artistic drought, so, so to speak. We've had musicians, but not visual artists. As a musician myself, it's always interesting to compare how creative people through their different mediums and how they relate to it. And we will include samples of your artwork on the show notes and uh, a link to the website where people can see more of that artwork. Well, I want to invite you to think of it this way. As a musician, you're painting colors with sounds and the vibrations and frequencies. That's what you're doing. You're painting with the, fre the frequencies. I like that. <laughs> a bit of a temporary picture <laughs> unless you record it. But exactly, so, yeah. you know, the Buddhist mandalas are temporary pictures as well. Exactly. I mean, everything is temporary, but there's always someone listening. <laughs> I love it. You're here, not just as an artist or although that if <laughs> we could talk for hours on that alone but you're also here representing women for conservation who work with rural communities in both Colombia and Nepal uh, tell us a little bit about W4C its legacy and how it started some recent achievements and highlights for the organization well, Women for Conservation is actually a legacy. And Women for Conservation started with my grandmother, Amparo, who is from the Paramo region that I'm speaking about. And her grandmothers were from these different regions. And it's really a great lineage of our, our grandmothers through us, and I'm the third generation. And what, what really represents us is resilience, perseverance, compassion, and love. And that's what I think anyone could really say about their grandmothers, right? So my mother was from a very poor family and my grandmother was very poor. 
but she always found a way to be connected with the women around her. She always found a way to become a leader in her community and to help in whatever way she could. And she helped some women that were in very, very bad situations, abusive situations, or even putting their daughters, their own daughters into prostitution. And this area the, where we are from is called Cauca, Colombia, which is one of the most violent areas in all of Colombia and has been and, and is continuing to be, unfortunately. My grandmother, Amparo, Amparito, she would ride around on her donkey and she would go to different villages and she would visit the women there and she would teach them how to do manualidades, artesanías, which are like handicrafts and artwork and flutes and she would teach them how to make instruments and she would teach them how to weave baskets and do all of these things so that they would be able to sell them at the at the Saturday market and have some money from that and sustain themselves from that and also she worked in a regional corporation which also was part of the the local government and she was really a voice and when she died she died very young she died resulting a very very traumatizing and abusive household um, with my grandfather, which you can imagine it, that kind of environment just, it just destroys a person, someone, especially an empath. My mother, unfortunately, had to go through some of the most terrible abuse you could think of for a little girl from the age of like six years old. So my mother lived through torture and with her sister and with my uncle, Tio Miki, and Tia Eli. So they had a very, very difficult life. What drove them out was that they, they had a very spiritual power. They're actually very strong individuals and they're healers. You see my mom and you can see her aura from so far because she's light. And they had to suffer and go through this unfortunately, to get to where they are now, which is a blessing. And they wouldn't be who they are without those difficulties. And I always raise that, that you need those difficulties in your life sometimes. And so my mother, she grew up being a very curious and intelligent girl. And she started engineering at a young age. And she's she was an engineer, a civil engineer. And then she she saw the industry and she saw how no one was caring about the environment and just building and destroying. And she said, no, I have to do something about this and I have to use my voice. Although she could have had a very fruitful career in, in engineering, she said, no, I'm going to stand up. And she started Pro Aves, Fundacion Pro Aves, 22 years ago with my father and um, with my now stepfather. She started this organization, which then Women for Conservation was born from first as a program and now as an organization. And that was pivotal because she saw that in the conservation world, there wasn't an emphasis or highlight on women in the projects, in the implementation of projects and conservation training, women were left out of the picture. So she started a program and then she saw that that wasn't successful enough. And she said, I have to upscale because this can't be restricted to just a program. This has to be big. And my grandmother is our logo of Women for Conservation. She is the representation. She is in our mission. She is in everything that we do. And I personally feel close to all of that energy. It's a fantastic example of being the change that you want to see. Just the organization so tied with your family legacy is an incredible story. One of the reasons why 
we in Sustainable Population Australia have met with you guys from Women for Conservation is because family planning is a major focus and, and what you do. So I guess the question is, you know, it's not the obvious choice for an environmental organization to go down. It is the hardest. My mom's like, what's the most challenging thing we can do? Oh, that? Okay, yeah. We can handle anything. <laughs> and you're like, was there a point where you said, oh, come on, mom, can't we just plant trees instead? <laughs> I was like, I was looking at this issue. I'm like, oh, oh my gosh. Like, I, you sometimes you feel really small. Like, you feel so small, but my mom, she doesn't feel like that. <laughs> Why is family planning an issue which is important for uh, you and your mother and the organization and why is it also important for the communities that you support and so often um in this dialogue and in this protracted debate (laughs) the communities themselves who require the services are left out as always from the discussion i'm gonna just speak personally from my experience and from the experience from the women that we work with One of the most important details to consider in these populations is that many of these women are in living in a below poverty level. They have very little opportunity, especially out of school. And if they don't finish school, they have even lower opportunities because of where they are. They're in places that have been abandoned by the state, essentially that have either just been neglected or there's a lot of conflict and war, and then it makes it very difficult for any kind of help to come in. One thing to consider while we are talking about this is that situation. The women that we have talked with are some of the most hardworking women that I've ever met that make it work however they can, but they are coming to us. They're coming and asking us for this aid because They are in a situation where they can't sustain having another child on top of the five or six or four that they already have. And many of these girls like started coming up to us and really voicing through the leaders of the community and spaces where we were able to have focus groups and talk to these girls and these women. And because girls, because I'm saying that they're my age or even younger, we've had these, these moments where we, really just listen to what the community needs. That is the most important part of our work and why we started doing family planning is because we were listening to what the community was saying instead of going and already with a plan. You know, you always have like a, a ground plan, but you really have to listen to what the elders and to what the people are saying that they need. We were really appalled by the amount of, of girls that are 16, 17, 18 that weren't able to finish their high school education because they were already pregnant or they had already had a baby and they were desperate, desperate to receive help. And they weren't able to go to our trainings or to our programs because they have to take care of their children. Even to have many of these groups come together. I mean, it's a really big coordination for for these women because they have to have someone who takes care of their kids and, the, and then they have to have like a network and they are brilliant networking within themselves. But like the issue here is, is that there's girls who want to pursue a career, but how can they pursue a career if they already have two kids? And so one of the most 
heartbreaking things is, is just seeing an issue and not addressing it. That's the elephant in the room is that because you're asking us what ways, in what ways we can bring professionals and, and people to help prevent, you know, these, these pregnancies that are essentially altering the entire life of this individual. The entire trajectory of a girl, of a woman's life is changed with having a child, especially if she's having that child without help. Because most of these girls that have come up to us are coming up to us and saying, look, my, my husband has left me. I have already two children. Can you help me? I don't think I can sustain another pregnancy. And I, I want to, I want to be able to do it in the most responsible way. So how do we do it? We bring nurses, psychologists, doctors to these communities. And they are the ones that give all of the information on family planning, on what method is best for who and who should be eligible to it. And also we do other checks like mammograms and we talk about preventing cervical cancer because that's another huge issue. I was going to ask, how does it look day to day in terms of providing um, the family planning and reproductive health care or does it depend on what community you're working with um, or is there kind of a, a similar model that you apply or, or do, do you work with communities to train their own doctors and midwives and um, contraceptive care and well we actually work with a really great organization called Pro Familia, which they have all of the, they do all of the health screening and they have offices and um, health clinics all over Colombia. They're one of the biggest, they're the biggest. And we work with their professionals because they are some of the most caring people that I have met. I, I've, we've met various people on the, the, nursing level up to the director, the, all of the group in the administrative office. And I think one of the main things that they focus on is really the educational, the education component about all kinds of preventions and also not just family planning, but we also talk about crises, like for example, violence um, in the house, um, domestic violence. They also have a lot of resources for women, immigrant women like Venezuelans. We've been able to aid many Venezuelan immigrant women who have not received any support from the Colombian government and who are not eligible. And so we've covered them. And this organization is really great also at connecting us with different brigaders and medical professionals. And also what you do is, um, and how it works is detailed in the written interview that you participated in for the SPA newsletter, which we'll also provide a link in the show notes. You know, the work that you do brings up broader questions on population sustainability, which is perceived by many left-leaning environmentalists in the global north as a taboo topic or so. <laughs> many university professors as well. <laughs> it's so controversial that there is often a blockage toward a constructive dialogue around the global north getting involved in family planning and reproductive health initiatives in the global south. This includes the United Nations Population Fund that says 
don't let any alarmists or extremists get in the way of 8 billion people means 8 billion opportunities. Meanwhile, the facts are that half of pregnancies worldwide are unintended and also that we hit 8 billion the other day. Now, Ugandan-born population sustainability advocate Florence Blondel has shared her frustrations that assumptions are made without an understanding on what is the actual reality faced by communities in the global south. And this well-meaning blockage is getting in the way of work that needs to be done. How, how do you feel about <laughs> all of the above? Well, first of all, I really think that economic development and population are, are very tied close together. And I think just talking about 8 billion people, we're really talking about where are the resources coming from? Like, where are the resources going to come from, the 8 billion people? And when there are no resources in those places that were rich before in resources, what's going to happen then? And how are those people going to live? That's the real question. And um, I just really tie it into like, it's the age of high mass consumption, which refers to the essay on Rostow, which talks about how we are essentially going up and up and up in our stages of consumption until we get to this era and where it's literally just, it's, it's resource use, waste production, resource use, waste production. And we are in that. And, and as we have increased demand, of course, the, Global markets greatly depend on, on population because it depends on, it, it has a central role in consumption. And human capital is a result of population, it's human resources. But by that logic, then India would have one of the highest GDPs because it has the highest population, but it doesn't. And a large population is malnourished and there's a lot in poverty. So. If we're looking at it through that logic, then I think we're, we're flawed. You know, I think one of the biggest issues is that with the age of mass consumption comes a large responsibility of where all of those resources are going to come from. And if every single human being, 8 billion people, starts to highly consume, like developed nations, which have carbon footprints, which are disproportionately larger right now than developing nations, we're going to need so many more planets to sustain that. And that, this is where I like take my crack at something in the media now, which is like uh, the Avatar movie that everyone loves. And it's about finding another planet and killing the indigenous people and taking their resources. You know, the, the argument that it's not a population issue, it's a wealth distribution issue, um, given, you know, the top 10% of wealthy people consume over 50% of the world's resources. Do you feel there's a bit of a false dichotomy there? So it's not like an either or, but it's everything? It definitely is everything and everything is connected. Everything is connected. Just because these people are consuming more doesn't mean that we shouldn't change our trajectory. Like we have to look at it on a more macro level, on a bigger level, because I feel like one of the main reasons why I don't participate in arguments or in people uh, really like coming at you through that, like, I'm right, I'm right, is that you have to really look at it as a whole, as a whole big universe of 
dynamic situations. And the argument for population is that, at, from my perspective, my argument for population is there should be equitable growth for the, the, the population and there should be quality of life above quantity. There should be quality of life for the women who are bearing these children and for the families in rural developing nations, and that should be above all other arguments. That is what, is what we should be striving for, is to give them better quality by allowing there to be later marriages and smaller families. Therefore, they can focus on their careers and they can focus on building their, their families in a way that is equitable, not just the wealthiest and the wealthy and the, the poorest of the poor. I think that there's that divide mentally where we're thinking of compartmentalizing issues when it's really, it's an entire huge image that we have to look at and zoom out. Because doing the work that you do, it achieves so many positive human rights outcomes in the process the population happens to stabilise, which is, it is what many societies and, and women worldwide do want to do, except we kind of get in the way. And so it's both a human rights issue and a population issue. They can both be addressed in this really, really positive way if people would only let it. Exactly. Let's look at this in the positive Okay, let's look at it this way. If people are living better lives across the globe, then those people will probably become educated and will probably help to create innovations in the world. They could help medical advances, technological advances, the list goes on. If those people are better off and humanity then is better off, I will be better off. And this is altruism. We are coming at this at an altruistic angle that humans have a right of quality of life and the pursuit of happiness. And we, with Women for Conservation, are doing the best we can to raise this, this message of positivity and to look at it through this angle and not attack. Look, many population organisations, since we're talking about the holistic, bigger picture, including SPA, who support this podcast, tend to engage the argument in rational science-based arguments where um, it's all about the numbers. And I am painting the debate in broad strokes there, but this is typically the the direction the conversation has gone down historically, and this certainly has a place. However, I've really got a sense from uh, my past conversations with you um, that you come from a different place where population sustainability, reproductive freedom, and a move toward symbiosis with the natural environment has a, for loss of a better word, I'm going to use a spiritual element for you. At the risk of me paraphrasing you any worse than I have, would you like to expand on this idea a bit? Well, I come from the future. And even if I said, hey, I come from the future a million times, people wouldn't believe me because our vision is from the future. We are 
thinking in a way of how we can advance humanity, how we can sustain humanity on this planet better off, how we can live on this planet and not kill ourselves. I think that that has a very spiritual element because that is seeing every creation as worthy of living on this planet, not just me. It's not just me. We are a collective. And this Mother Earth feels and is sentient. Everything on this planet is sentient. And there's a collective intelligence. And we praise that. I take this as every day. I am the universe experiencing itself. And everything I see is a reflection of me. And nature is within me. And nature is all around me. And therefore, I shall do whatever I can to protect my mother. You would do whatever you could to protect your mother, wouldn't you? So that is where I come from and that spiritual aspect and what has been taught to me and what has healed many people as well through I've been able to, to have these very like out of body experiences with healing with my mother as well. She's one of the people that can really connect to your energy. And I think that having this perspective is essential. And this is a mindset. This is a mindset. This is what you teach your children to not hurt a, a little small animal. You would teach your child to do that. So we shall teach and we shall expand this message and take this message of the creator to all that want to, to receive it. I completely and utterly <laughs> adore that answer. When we were last speaking on Zoom, um, the conversation that I had with you and your mother actually started a few dendrites in my head or my spirituality or whatever, asking these questions. And it is kind of in its infancy, these ideas. So I've written it down and I might have to painfully read out what I've written down because um, I, I just don't quite know how to ask this casually in conversation yet. But look, this is a question I put together with the co-hosts of this podcast, Mark, due to our reflections. And we believe that one of the few but absolutely major successes of civilization, a few successes, is modern contraception. This means that humans can finally be stakeholders in controlling our numbers without many of the historical checks and balances that are often both painful and deadly, you know, like predators, for example. Not only do we get to choose the number of children that we want, but we can also now greatly reduce the pain of having to face large-scale infant mortality. A little while later, I came across articles how many animals appreciate music that we never recognised before, such as um, rats dancing to the rock band Queen. So, you know, perhaps it is possible for humans to be a conduit that nature uses to express peaceful symbiosis, whereby a species can check on its own numbers without having to rely on violent checks and balances like diseases, whilst at the same time humans might also enhance the aesthetic possibilities for other species through art and music. <laughs> Have you ever thought down these lines or is it just me? I think about this every day. I honestly do. <laughs> That's a relief. <laughs> and I can't wait to find out who else feels like Hopefully this. some of our <laughs> listeners, yeah. Because, <laughs> yes, I hope someone's listening. <laughs> 
But yeah, I think, look, there's just so much wonder. There's so much wonder in the eyes of a child experiencing a bird for the first time. And you, as an, as a person, should always keep that. Always keep that. And don't, don't try and, and, and lose it or shift it. Always try to experience something like you're experiencing it for the first time. And the beauty of being able to, to choose when you have a child is that you get to choose the circumstances of which you have that child. Because look, I'm going to tell you from my perspective, I came here to create. And not just create life within my womb, but to create great masterpieces of art and music that will inspire individuals and that will permeate through time and immortalize my soul. And I should have the freedom to choose when I want to create within my womb and when I am ready for it, because it's something that you have to be ready for. It's beautiful, it's wonderful, but it can also really, really challenge your life and it can reduce the probability of your child living to adulthood. And I know that's very alien for first world nations. I know that's very alien for a lot of people, but guess what? There's a lot of people that wake up today and they go, how am I going to feed my baby? How am I going to feed myself? How am I going to live another day? Or how is my baby going to survive? If these situations are getting harder, look around. The world is getting, it's becoming a harder place to live in because of cost, because of so many things. Wouldn't you want that person to be able to choose? That's, that's it. It's the choice and the freedom to be able to say, yes, I want to create now consciously with my womb a life and i will cherish that life and that life i shall i shall feed and clothe and be with until i'm an old woman that should be sagely guiding words that we <laughs> conduct our life each and every day like who can argue with that a lot of people well i won't <laughs> it's okay i should also qualify my question that that I asked you. I think that it's also important to point out that we uh, at PGAP hopefully appreciate that many First Nations cultures have methods of controlling uh, their numbers too. So this is an evolutionary process that started long before modern contraception, but modern contraception has played a major role, especially in Western cultures like Australia. I recently learned, for example, that many first settlers in Albany, where I live in the south coast of Western Australia, had up to 12 children with up to 50% dying in childhood. And while the First Nations people here appear to have maintained a stable population with much less trauma, as far as we're aware, but due in part to Western interference, but also through modern innovation, contraception as we know it is now really the most effective approach for most societies worldwide, yet so many people are not getting to share in this evolutionary leap 
whereby we can be a species that controls numbers in the most compassionate way possible. Um, and I suppose that brings me back to the, you know, well-meaning people in the global north and the left who almost seem to, in their arguments, insinuating that wealth should be guaranteed worldwide, but almost not access to family planning and contraception. It's, yeah, it's such a distorted argument from my perspective. Yes. Well, just to touch base on that, um, there's quite a difference in ideologies. First of all, we're talking about really broad issue and many different angles to come at it. So it's essential to understand where people are coming from. Like what part are they coming from? I personally believe that there should be support from the governments in accessing really inaccessible areas with these brigades. I think that this is some action that should be taken primarily by the government. It's their responsibility. And I, I think that there should be a global, a global push to talk about sexuality and to educate about sexuality and the different ramifications because there's an overwhelming amount of inaccessibility to this information or wrong information. There aren't reliable sources to the, to the masses in, in the sense that it isn't something that is talked about in many cultures. It's actually quite taboo in a lot of cultures. And as for first world nations, I believe that first world nations are able to, to monitor their process based on their connection with their femininity and also the moon and the patterns of the moon. They, they know they have that ancestral knowledge, but people, a lot of people that discredit indigenous, indigenous knowledge, actually pretty much all of our education system, um, discredits indigenous knowledge or indigenous cultures. That is a huge issue, but also there's a changing world where there are new infectious diseases that are affecting people in different ways than they would have a thousand years ago or 500 years ago or even 200 years ago because we're shifting because of globalization. Now there's so much more contact with all kinds of human beings. So one, one thing I really, really stress is education. Sexual education is key. And in the United States, for example, with everything that has happened with Roe versus Wade, I think that is also very detrimental. That is detrimental for the mentality of people in, in the United States. And there are a lot of people pushing against it. And I very much so believe that this has more to do with tying to the economy with than it does to considering women's rights. And speaking of the economy... PGAP is not only about population, but it holds a broader dialogue on alternatives to the jobs and growth narrative of our current market-based economies. So I'm interested in your broader thoughts on the idea of infinite economic growth on a finite planet. Yes, well, I think for the people that don't know, there's the Malthusian dilemma, which was written by Thomas Malthus, a uh, British economy. He wrote an essay called the, an, an essay on the principle of population. And this 
propose that humans have a population that is geometric or exponential, the different resources that we depend on are actually finite. So the Earth is essentially finite. And the more people, the more, <laughs> the more resources we're going to need, right? I personally think that this essay has a few errors or, I mean, faults, because he really equates poverty as a cycle of misery, which is a cycle that people just can't get out of and that they're in that cycle. And that famine and disease would have essentially killed off humanity like it would rabbits. And this was very popular. And it's still one of the main, the most persistent theories to date. And I think that this doesn't account for humanity's ability to innovate technology, such as pesticides and fertilizations and I think technological advances even in machinery di distribution and medical advances that have kept us alive and that have increased our life expectancies. I believe that we as humans have a better off chance now of living on the planet in a harmonious way than ever because we are educating more people and we are connected with the internet and we have a way of becoming creative. Humans are very creative. And the economy really depends on this as well with creating individuals who can go into the workforce, who will then consume, but we need the manpower. And most economies really argue that they won't say anything about population because who would say, who, what economy would say, yes, we don't want to have growth. We want to just n not have any growth because that's not what these governments or even presidential candidates are even saying. They're saying that they are going to create exponential growth and that everyone's going to have the American dream, basically, which isn't very realistic because there's a very interesting economist from Oxford that she has a wonderful TED Talk and she talks about this type of high mass consumption as like an airplane that never lands. You're going to have to come to the, to the reality that yes, there are, the earth is finite. And if we do consume in that high mass consumption as all of us, there isn't another planet that we can extract resources quick enough. So there's a huge tie with economy. And that is something that we should all become very conscious of and that I push for. Once again, everything's interconnected, isn't it? Exactly. Everything is connected. Everything is connected. And we should improve in our way of, of relating to one another and not see one another as rivals. We should see each other as our support, our support and how we're going to sustain life on this planet, because it really is up to that. And I'm really serious. I mean, so many people have these existential crises and I have def I'm definitely going through one right now because I see this and I say how are we possibly going to just let this continue as business as usual and you just he talk after talk and people just don't really seem to change anything well from someone who's going through an existential crisis you certainly brightened up <laughs> my year <laughs> i mean in the last last few weeks i've been having an existential crisis myself and just going oh god why do i even bother so i think it's really good to be able to 
connect with like-minded people and have these um, connections so we can kind of recharge each other a bit as, as I have. Yeah, I think, you know, ignorance is bliss. And so when you're ignorant to the issues, you're just kind of relaxed. And the reason why I'm going through this is because, like, I am filling my head with so much knowledge every day, every day. I have, I'm finishing my master's and I'm, or I'm halfway through and it's just an amount of knowledge that is like, wow. And the more you see the picture, the more you zoom out, you know, the, the darker it gets. That is, that is very true. Bumble, you're biting from the um, apple of knowledge. <laughs> Maybe there's a bit of the Genesis story after all. <laughs> Um, now, we talked about interconnection and support, and speaking of support, if anyone would like to support women for conservation, and how's that for a segue, um, where can they go and what can they do and how can they say hello? First of all, I would like everyone to just take a moment, that was a lot to take in, and just, I really appreciate if everyone takes a look at what is important. To become a part of Women for Conservation, like I said, this is a mindset. This is a mentality. It's really opening and shifting your mentality away from just consuming or just living your life the way it is and not being comfortable because you have bigger plans for yourself. And that is what I'm trying to expand upon is that to become a part of us, you really have to to internalize this message of I am great and I am going to create and I'm not just going to consume. That is the most powerful thing you can do. And then spread the message, spread the message to other people. Really give the people in your life that you love the most the priceless things, which are time, energy, love, and attention. That's the most important thing. Do something for them instead of like, getting something for them. And also, if you really want to be a part of what we do, just, you know, connect with us in media ways. But I'm also always available if you want to write to me or if there's anything you want to say. And I really enjoy having these spaces because me as an artist, this is my calling, is my platform, is to use it to create and to talk to people. And that's the best way to connect. And if anyone is out there listening, just listen to your heart and repeat after me. I'm a human being, not a human buying. And I came here to love and perceive and create. <laughs> what a beautiful way to end this conversation, Isabella. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. I have one last part of like this little poem that I wrote. Can I share it? Oh, most definitely. Okay. Passion is much like love in the principle of application. Since passion is the dignified reason that gives existence meaning, music, art, dance, together with each and every expression is a lucid outburst of pure, sweet passion. Why do our everyday routine? Why be studious in the manner of excelling and reaching personal goals, if not done with passion? Why do it at all? The answer lies immersed within us. And that is my poem, Art is Child's Play for the Immaculate. <laughs>
Growth Australia podcast, the podcast where better is definitely better than bigger. We just spoke with Isabella Cortez, co-founder and director of conservation with Women for Conservation, and we just heard her stunning piece of music, Aguita de Paramo. Mark, what did you think of that interview and the things that Isabella had to say? I loved it. I loved it so much. Isabella takes an incredibly holistic approach, and dare I say it, a spiritual approach too. And spiritual doesn't have to mean religious, just her connection to place and country and family and the whole lot, that deep resonance she has with the land is something that I think a lot of Western environmentalism misses out on. I think it's. I mean, it was one of those interviews where I just felt so incredibly inspired and just going, yes, yes, yes. And But I did note that um, a few of the things that cropped up 
seemed to correlate with some of the arguments that you've made in the past in regards to approaching things holistically and interconnectedly and also the population as a human rights thing as well as a population thing. Yeah, well, that's right. Um, there's a lot of joined up thinking there. We all have an obligation to look at how everything interconnects together and how our various approaches to activism and our individual approaches to the environment can connect together. And I think that looking for that deep resonance and connection to something deeper than our intellect, whether it's just to our kinship as humans, our connection to non-human nature, and understand that we can carry with us different opinions if we all connect on the fact that family planning is a fundamental human right, and that empowered women who have access to family planning are also empowered to do a lot of other things as well, including creating resilient nature-based communities, and that common thread is connection to something deeper than our intellects, to the power and the beauty of the existence of humans and nature and our interconnection. My discussions with her was quite serendipitous, you know, her response to the question about like this alternative way of being um, in which humans do have something to offer life and the universe and everything like the possibility of being able to voluntarily have agency over your size of your family and the, without the checks and balances that existence has created to keep numbers of species in check, which can be violent and terrible for the individuals at the receiving end of that. Well, that's exactly right. Humanity is this amazing option for nature to actually show compassion, to actually be able to make moral and ethical decisions, to not factory farm animals, to control the number of children we have, to focus on, on medicine and lifting people out of poverty and showing compassion to non-human animals. People say that nature is inherently cruel but we are also nature showing compassion. We're also nature showing that it can be compassionate if we create the right circumstances. And that's an incredibly beautiful thing. The problem is, is that humans can do the opposite. They can actually show that nature can be incredibly cruel because when we do have the option to be compassionate, we choose to do the opposite. Non-human nature isn't cruel per se. It does what it does in order to keep itself going. Exactly. I remember you showing me an article of how rats really enjoy music. So maybe in a degrowth society in which we're not too busy building shit and killing other species in the sake of our own egos, we could be spending that playing music for uh, all the animals, which apparently really enjoy our music and also walking on the side of compassion. Exactly. We could be playing music to rats as long as it's not the first Radiohead album. <laughs> start them on the bends. Otherwise, but if you play them, Pablo, honey, they'll be making their own rat poison. Well, I think that's good to end on the episode now and a very amusing joke. Thank you for the amusing joke. Thank you for the coffee. <laughs>